0: The technology that Respirix has can monitor the lung function, core temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, pulse oximetry, EKG, all that from home with a 30-second reading. And so the thought is, if you can get enough patients using this device and or get the relevant patients, like patients suffering from COVID that aren't having respiratory difficulties, but you want to monitor them closely, you can now send them home with our device have them take a measurement every four to six hours and the physician can stay on top of them with a quality of data that they would otherwise have required hospitalization into the ward in order to obtain. So that technology is poised, I think, to become a category killer in the remote patient monitoring category.
1: Welcome to this episode of Imagine Human, where we share the stories of diverse changemakers at the intersection of social impact, science, and technology. I'm your host, Matt Carolus. Without a doubt, COVID-19 has profoundly impacted our world, and in many cases, changed the way we live. One area of focus is on the US healthcare system that has at times been overstretched and stressed in cities across the country. As we begin to live our daily lives in new ways, such as through contactless interactions, There is a growing need for technologies in healthcare that can detect, predict, and prevent illnesses at home and out of the hospital. In this episode, we are joined by inventor and serial entrepreneur, Dan Burnett. Dan received his MD and MBA from Duke University, and since 2006 has spun out 14 venture-backed or private capital-backed companies through an incubator he created called Theranova. Dan will share his journey as an entrepreneur, focusing on technologies that improve outcomes reduce costs, and expand access to care. Dan will also take us on a tour of what some of the Theranova portfolio companies are working on to tackle this COVID crisis and how they are using actionable data streams to detect, predict, and prevent illness. Tell me about yourself, Dan.
0: Yeah, so where do I begin? I When I describe my Career arc I'd talk about. Uh, started off as a biomedical engineer at University of Pennsylvania. actually started as a computer science engineer and then switched to bioengineering. After my first year, I didn't like sitting at the computer and programming all day. I needed more personal interaction. And then I entered into bioengineering in my sophomore year and stayed in that until I graduated from University of Pennsylvania in 1994. Uh, went and worked at the FDA for a year and applied for a bunch of jobs. With medical device companies. At the time, none of them really knew what a bioengineer was, so I wasn't able to get a job. And in the background, as a backup, I was applying to medical school. I was accepted to Duke Med and took about a year to work at the FDA prior to going to Duke and then went to Duke and got my MD and my MBA, matched for an internship in ophthalmology at Stanford, residency in ophthalmology at Stanford, and an internship at the Mayo Clinic, but I only ended up doing the internship. I deferred the residency for a year and started my first company. That was back in 2003. During that deferral year, I was able to get my first company started. I joined the venture firm that invested in it as a principal, became a partner on their last fund, and was a general partner there for a short while. I was at the venture firm for a total of two years, and it was $160 million dollar four partner fund called Midventure Associates, and I left there in 2006 when I realized I liked building companies more than investing in them. And since then I've been working through Theranova, Incubator I started, and we've spun out 14 or so venture-backed or private capital-backed companies
1: in the last 14 years, so about one a year. You've got such an interesting mix of medicine, engineering entrepreneurship, business. What in your mind has strung these things together or how do you think you got to where you are today in that flow of things? Yeah,
0: it wasn't a straight line, that's for sure. So I, like I said, I started as computer science engineering and I really didn't like it. I had a a 2.7 GPA my freshman year. And so I was looking for something else. And then I, one of my friends suggested bioengineering and I just really took to that. I loved bioengineering, and I excelled there. And what I really loved about bioengineering was the the problem-solving component of it. I really enjoyed the challenge and the ability to understand a need very deeply and then provide a solution to that market need. So I really immersed myself in bioengineering. Like I said, I tried to get a job at Medtronic St. Jude Boston Scientific. But at the time, they all asked, "What can you do?" And I said, "A little bit of everything," because that's what a bioengineer is. And I wasn't able to get a job anywhere, so I ended up going to medical school. And while I was in my surgery rotation, and surgery rotation, mind you, you're you're working. This was before they had the time limits. Definitely over 80 hours a week. So it's the type of thing where you get up at 5 a.m., you get home at 10 p.m., and then you catch, you eat what you can, you catch some sleep, and you get back up at 4.30 so you can be there at 5 a.m. again. And that's when you're not on call. You're on call every third night. And I observed one of the residents putting in a tympanostomy tube, which is an ear tube for patients that have chronic ear infections. And it was on a patient that was under general anesthesia, and he accidentally pushed the tube into the middle ear And I thought, wow, that was really not well done in terms of his procedural skills or in terms of the tools that he had. So what I did that very night when I got home at 10 p.m., I had some computer skills because of my computer science engineering background. I went online. It was all text back then. But I was able to do some searches for patents related to tympanostomy tubes and tried to see what was available, not just in patents, but also available products. And I found there weren't any good insertion tools, so I started to kind of sketch out what tympanostomy tube insertion tools would look like if if they were designed for that purpose. And before I knew it, it was one in the morning, and I had to get up in three hours. But the fact that I had—I was already exhausted, working 90-hour, 100-hour weeks, and I had gone home and I had forgotten time, I'd lost track of time. That, to me, was probably the single biggest indicator that what I was doing at that moment is what I really loved doing,
1: and I knew that's what I wanted to do. One of the things that sounds like that both drives you and that you're good at is understanding a need very deeply and providing a solution for it, but there also seems to be this desire to use technology to advance health.
0: That's definitely the case. So that was the intersection. Bioengineering is the intersection of technology and biology and health. So that that's what interested me so much. When I was in medical school, I had thought being a doctor was going to be like House, the TV show where you're a real sleuth and if you can't figure it out, then you'll leave the hospital and go to the patient's house and knock on their walls and figure out they have some termites that are secreting a toxin that's causing their symptoms. And it, it, the house is massively exaggerated. We, residents would never do that. But I felt like it was going to be more problem solving. But when I was at the Mayo Clinic, they started to adopt these things called care maps, which are these prescribed checklists for care. And at first I thought these won't last, but then they did some studies to show that care care maps actually helped care. It helped the less than average doctor bring their skills up to that of an average doctor. And so it improved overall care. I knew care maps were going to be around for a while. And I knew that overall care was getting better. So I, the place I felt like I could have the biggest impact was if I could design or help channel technology into medicine, I could have a massive impact on many, many more patients than I, much greater than I ever could just as a single practitioner service provider. So that that was part of the big allure for me and dr- the drive for me to go into bioengineering and the technology creation side of things. What issues are you
1: currently passionate about?
0: Yeah, I would say the general thesis around what I've been doing lately has been related to data in medicine. There's an expression now that data is the new oil. It's where your people are going to make their ton of money and it'll power all sorts of things in society. And that's true. But I think data that is a commodity is not quite oil. It's, it's more of a, and if it's not a rich, actionable data stream, then it's certainly not oil. It needs to be actionable. So, what I've been looking at and what we've been focusing on at Theranova in our spinouts is proprietary data streams that are clinically actionable that can actually impact clinical care. And then using those data streams to not just get point measurements, spot measurements of these data streams, but instead tracking and trending them over time and then featurizing those data sets so that you can perform some pretty elegant and powerful artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, whatever you wanna call it. But the you can create these algorithms that can not just detect illness at the earliest possible stage, but also predict it and prevent it by allowing you to change medicines and apply therapies at the time to avoid
1: the consequences of a progressing illness. Do you have any examples of those very specific applications of data streams?
0: Yeah, I can give you two good ones. One is a company that I spun out and brought up, was lucky enough to bring on a a CEO, Joe Urban. It's called Petrero Medical. And Petrero Medical is a venture-backed company that makes a critical care monitor that monitors urine output, intra-abdominal pressure, and core temperature. And it does it in a way that's exquisite and the data streams are pure and not corrupted by factors that typically corrupt, particularly urine output. The urine output, the urine that leaves the body, there's all sorts of issues with the drainage of that urine and it And keeping it consistent is difficult. Patrural Medical has figured out a way to keep it consistent so that the urine that comes out of the bladder is truly the urine that was just produced by the kidney. So it's urine production equals urine output. That's not the case for most urine drainage systems. Using that richer, more robust data stream, Patrural Medical is developing an algorithm now that Can not only detect acute kidney injury at the earliest stages, but predict it significantly by many hours in advance by tracking and trending the urine output, and not just looking at spot measurements. That's that's one strong example right there. They're working with a couple major centers now to develop this acute kidney injury algorithm, and then to validate it. After which, they they expect to launch it commercially. The other company that's very relevant to this topic is Respirix. And Respirix makes a device that you breathe into that gives you a tremendous amount of data related to your cardiopulmonary status. And this has been of increasing interest to the clinical community and the investor community, frankly, due to the COVID crisis. The technology that Respirix has can monitor the lung function core temperature heart rate respiratory rate pulse oximetry ekg all that from home with a 30 second reading and so the thought is if you can get enough patients using this device and or get the relevant patients like patients suffering from covid that aren't having respiratory difficulties but you want to monitor them closely you can now send them home with our device have them take a measurement every four to six hours, and the physician can stay on top of them with a quality of data that they would otherwise have required hospitalization into the ward in order to obtain. So that technology is poised, I think, to become a category killer in the remote patient monitoring category.
1: With remote patient monitoring specifically, what challenges are there in getting Clinicians or health systems in adopting these new technologies to do things like remote patient monitoring? Yeah,
0: the, there's a few things there. One is in this field, you have several hurdles. You have the regulatory hurdle to even get your product to market. Then you have reimbursement hurdle so that get your product paid for. And then you have to convince clinicians in the healthcare system at large that your device is is going to be something that they want to is something that they want to use. Usually they're related. So if a device gets through the FDA, it's usually shown that it's benefit outweighs the risk and if it gets through CMS, it sh- it's usually means that it's considered to be worthwhile monetarily. But you still some will frequently need a larger study to get evidence-based medicine. A lot of physicians are very data related now. So The biggest hurdle a lot of times is going to be reimbursement and payment. In the case of remote patient monitoring, it's a perfect storm right now. There's a lot of money going into remote patient monitoring technologies because the FDA is now, has recently been much more aggressive with this thing called emergency use authorization of devices. And they're doing that for remote patient monitoring to try to enable these healthcare systems to use this technology to help fight this COVID pandemic. That's one thing. Second, the payers, and CMS in particular, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who sets the reimbursement, and then frequently private payers will follow. CMS, earlier this year, it was very prescient of them, they issued a RPM code I forgot the actual code. It's like nine nine five one four or something. This code allows companies that transmit data to bill to the code, and it allows clinicians that review the data to also bill to the code, which takes out two of the major hurdles of getting a medical device to market. The regulatory, the FDA is now much more amenable to the EUA pathway, and Reimbursement with CMS having a code for remote patient monitoring. Then the final is clinician adoption. And I think in this case, again, with respirics, clinicians are clamoring for something like this where they can send patients home that aren't ready to be admitted to the hospital. They may or may not have COVID, but they want to manage them from home as long as they can. Because if they do have COVID 19, then bringing them into the hospital risks exposing everybody in the hospital. And if they don't have it, hospitalizing them risks exposing them to the other patients there that do have it. So having them quarantined at home, as long as they're stable enough, is definitely the best case scenario for everybody.
1: In my mind ties back to what you're saying about using data that's actionable. If whatever remote monitoring solution you're using is able to do things I do risk stratify patients and send alerts and that actually makes life easier for clinicians.
0: And that's that's critical. We're we're not nothing we do is aiming to replace the physician. We're just aiming to augment the physician's care. And so you're exactly right. And you need to have a customizable protocol. So physicians, for example, if they just send a patient out with a generic device like a pulse oximeter. It's going to give them all sorts of bad, bad recommendations and readings because there are patients, for example, with congestive, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary dis- disease, where they live comfortably at a pulse oxygenation, a blood oxygen saturation of 89, 90, whereas the current recommendations for pulse ox monitoring for COVID is if you're below 95 or 93, I forgot the threshold, then you should be, you should go to the hospital and and the recommendation is to hospitalize them. So you'd have a false positive there if you didn't tailor the device to the patient and allow customizable alerts. And that's what we
1: also will do with our device. Let's talk a little bit about this COVID crisis. I know you've mentioned some of the work that's being uh, lifted by the regulatory hurdles. Can you talk a little bit about how that's impacted your day-to-day these days and if you have a vision for where this is going long-term?
0: Yeah, thanks. I wish I had a vision of where this was going. I wish anybody had a vision of where it was going, honestly. It's, it's, it's a brave, definitely a brave new world right now, and I think there is going to be a new normal. That's, that's the one thing I would say it feels like to me, and the new normal is going to be uh, quite a bit different than the old normal. Covid definitely has exposed major issues with the healthcare system, and those those issues are being addressed very rapidly by the, by the healthcare system. I think the
1: the
0: technologies that have an impact on on covid or have gotten a huge tailwind from the hospitals' infra- infrastructure being inadequate right now. It seems to me that this is not going to be something that goes away it's going to just be coming coming in wave after wave and it'll i, I do believe I agree with the experts saying that it'll come back in the winter so i do i do believe that it's going to keep coming back if and there will be other viruses and this is just one of many pandemics that we'll have over the history of our the human race i think and we have to be prepared for the next technologies that allow us to prepare for that i think are going to be in the spotlight moving forward
1: can you tell us a little bit about the work there is doing around covid-19
0: we talked about respirics which i think could be really impactful for this monitoring of the covid-19 population and making sure that they aren't that they're managed in the best possible manner, ideally quarantined in their home unless they get sick enough that they need to go to the hospital. Um, We also have a program that, and Respirix, by the way, both of our COVID programs are Stardex programs. So Stardex was early on in the Respirix effort. They they were an early supporter. We were part of their cohort a couple of years ago. And they, they're, their task force has been great with respect to pulling together people that are like-minded and want to have an impact on uh, this whole the whole covid pandemic so the respirix when it first started was a congestive heart failure monitoring company and copd monitoring company that that was what the company was uh, tasked with and that was its mandate and charter when it was a X portfolio company a couple of years ago Attacked into this COVID because it's perfectly aligned with what the parameters that we capture, and I think could be really impactful in the care of COVID patients. Startx is also helping Theranova with its most recent company called Just Air, and what Just Air does is it uses uh, proprietary technology to pump filtered, purified air up into the user's nasal pharynx region currently under a mask, and it pumps pressurized air into that area so that the air you breathe, no matter where you are, is 100% HEPA-filtered air. Right now, masks are, if you have a mask, your chance of catching COVID, if somebody is aerosolizing it around you, is still very high, up to 70%, mainly because unless it's fit professionally, there are gaps in the mask that allow aerosolized particles to enter your lungs, even if you have an N95 mask. So what we've done is by pumping this pressurized air into that mouth region, we've created a system where there's a constant positive pressure. Even when you're inhaling, we're pumping enough air into that region that it's still positive pressure. So there's never air drawn in from ambient air, it's always the air that's pumped in across the HEPA filter. And Stardex has been great. They've paired us up with a a mask manufacturer that we're in the process of partnering with to ideally plumb our air into their mask in a manner that's custom-fitted so that it's optimized for the user experience. The typical mask that people are using now, that you see them out and about is not for protecting the user from inhaling aerosolized particles. It's for protecting the people around the user from the user themselves. That's why a surgeon's mask that the surgeon wears during an operation, it's not designed to protect the surgeon from anything from the patient. It's designed to protect the patient from the surgeon's spittle and aerosolized particles as the surgeon speaks during the surgery. Most of the masks that you see people wearing now are to protect others around them. The masks to protect yourself from particles are called PPE, personal protective equipment, and they need to be professionally fitted. If they're not professionally fitted, you'll be breathing in ambient air around you and you will be be exposed to infectious particles if they're in the air around you. The way that we solve this at Just There is by Pumping in HEPA-filtered air into the mask itself, so that that area is pressurized. There's only HEPA-filtered air going into your lungs, and nothing other than HEPA-filtered air because it's always at a constant positive pressure.
1: What challenges have you overcome to get here? Huh. it's a good
0: question. I would say the the very first one there was uh I was a, a financial challenge. I My childhood was one where I did not, my mom was not able to pay for my college. So I had to work my way through college. First, I had to, it was difficult to get in. But then once I got in, I also had to work for the duration. And I was work study the entire time, all the way through, and ended up heavily in debt. But I'm glad that I was able to work my way through college, including medical school. I had while I was in medical school, I was a science and math tutor for the athletes. So I saw a lot of the basketball athletes that came through there. And then I would say a big challenge that I had that I had to overcome early on was I, I've I've had some of my companies become funded by an investment group early on in my career where I hadn't vetted The group and made sure that we were on the same page in terms of what we were looking for for the company. And the biggest challenges I would say that I had there were that I had to, we had some board level discussions that were very heated related to what the future of the company would look like. One company in particular was a therapeutic hypothermia company where I disagreed with how the path forward for the company disagreed with what it should be with the essentially the the owner of the preferred stock and it ended up in a situation where we disagreed so much that i ended up leaving the board and the company ended up not having the greatest outcome but again as with everything you can learn from these events if if you are open to learning from them and so my takeaway there was the, not, I decided at that point that I just had to make sure that I was really well aligned with any investor that I brought into companies into my company thereafter. And it's been a, a sort of a, a cautionary tale for me and my other CEOs that that I bring on to uh, the Theranova portfolio companies. And how did you get involved with StartX? So my involvement with StartX began with the previous CEO at Respirix, Eric Kriegstein. He um, saw that the StartX program was an excellent program. It doesn't take any equity, so it's non-dilutive. And it's just a bunch of really supportive entrepreneurs that are all they're pushing in the same direction. It, it, It feels very collaborative. It's kind of what I had hoped entrepreneurism would be. Although it can sometimes be a little bit cagey, but this feels very collaborative and a very, it's kind of a beautiful blending of academia and industry. So we sought to apply to the StartX program. One of our founders, Evan Luxon, technical founder of Respirix, was actually at Stanford. He uh, um, did a master's in mechatronics there. And he, through him, we had the connection that was required to apply to StartX We applied and then were accepted and were part of their, I think it was spring 2018 cohort, if I remember correctly. And then as we went through that program, we got a tremendous
1: value from it. Can you tell us a little bit about the way that Theranova is set up? I understand that there have been several spin-outs out of Theranova. Can you talk about that model and an example of one of the spin-outs?
0: Yeah, so Theranova... Like like I said, it began back in 2006 when I left the uh, venture firm, MedVenture Associates. And since then, I've been starting companies serially. And then once I have started two or three companies, I, I built up the team, sat and pitched to investors, and then the whole team went off with the company for the first two, myself included. And then after I'd formed two or three of those companies, I realized we were spending so much money on ip and quality and clinical going to external consultants so what we did at that time is i said what if we could hire collectively as a co-op essentially a i a person to handle our patent portfolio and we and all the companies could save money and we'd get a really excellent quality employee to drive it and it would be a win-win-win so we did that with intellectual property and it worked out incredibly well. We then added on quality and clinical, and then started to hire some key engineering resources that were hard to hire, like software and electrical engineering. So, and built it up to what it is now, where we have 25 FTEs, full-time employees. And the goal of Theranova now is to support these companies in developing technologies that have a triple aim of improving outcomes, reducing the cost of care, and expanding access to care. And so we we seek technologies that are doing those three things, and we look for needs where we can design technologies that satisfy this triple aim in meeting the need for that market. And so one of the really good examples of that recent example is that the Stardex company, Respirix, where we have a technology now that can track and trend a variety of different parameters that can be captured in a very quick, user-friendly, easy-to-use measurement that we think can have a huge impact on not just COVID-19 but for the future for readmission rates for congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and pneumonia. Collectively, those three pathologies account for 80 billion plus. In expenses in the US every year. so Theranova is looking for technologies that meet that triple aim and ideally have some are in some way regulated. That's our, another part of our secret sauce is we have a very good understanding of the regulated medical device industry and the various hurdles, whether it be regulatory reimbursement or data evidence-based medicine that it's going to take to get that product to market.
1: Are all the companies that you're working with spun out of Theranova creation, or are some of them companies that have have come to you and wanting to partner with you and be able to be a part of the Theranova family?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. We initially started off, I'd say our first 10 companies were all Theranova originated. Myself and my partner in Theranova, Dr. Shane Mangrum, who's a physical medicine and rehabilitation doc in Atlanta now, but he and I did our intern, we did our internship together at the Mayo Clinic. The first 10 or so companies were our ideas or the ideas of engineers that we hired into some of the earlier spin-outs. Recently, we formed a partnership with UCSF, the Surgical Innovations Program. So we've brought in a company, a couple doctors from there that had wanted to work on technologies, And we've also brought in two other one-offs, a company out of Dallas called Atea and a company out of Nebraska, Future Assure, where we felt like what they wanted to do with the companies and the technologies they were developing were really well aligned to what our skill sets were. And with Theranova's mission, AAA mission, so we we did, in those cases, bring those technologies in and are working on them now as Theranova portfolio companies.
1: Working with 25 or more companies must be challenging. I'm interested in how you figure out how to spend your time with different companies. I may have gotten that 25 number wrong, so feel free to clarify.
0: Yeah, no, 25 would be overwhelming. Even the 14 or so that we've spun out are is pretty overwhelming. So for me, it's all about Hiring and empowering great people, I, I wouldn't be able to do it without the the fantastic teams that we form so and what I tend to do is I tend to bring on amazing teams and then augment them when necessary and help them from a higher level as a individual contributor at the for example, at the chairman level so I make sure, though, not to be the CEO of more than one company at a time, uh, since fundraising is gets a little bit more complicated if you are the CEO of more than one company. So I will bring on excellent talent and then we'll drive them forward. The model that we have at Veranova of this, what I would call, I would now uh, dub parallel entrepreneurism instead of serial entrepreneurism. This model was one that I came up when I was at, on the venture side of things. I liked the venture model where your risk could be mitigated by having multiple entities that you're involved with. And that's what they do on the venture side of things. They can have a portfolio of companies such that you can have a couple failures as long as a couple of them are really big successes. So there's an expression they have that... the chicken is interested in giving you a good breakfast, the pig is committed. And the venture guys and the investors typically want the entrepreneur to be the pig at breakfast. I wanted to create something where I'm still committed, but I'm committed in in a way that allows me to hedge my risk and being involved with more than one entity at a time as a board member and helping drive it from the board level after hiring excellent talent into the company to ensure that the day-to-day operations are being driven
1: in an optimal way. When we first met, you shared with me that one of the things that you've seen in your career has been a shift from the for-profit corporation world and work to more of a not-for-profit social benefit corporation. And similarly, you've had this focus on moving to technologies that have really a, a profound impact could you share a little bit more about what that shift's been like and maybe some of the the, the reasoning behind it
0: yeah so for me my origins were in the not for profit side of things that that the very first thing i started was a medical supply recovery program that we called the duke medical gleaning program my Ex-wife and I started it while I was at Duke, and the whole purpose of it was to take supplies that had been exposed to the OR, but not to the patient, and take those supplies and send them overseas or to places where they could still be used after we had sterilized them. So we would re-sterilize them with ethylene oxide sterilization, and then once they were had been re-sterilized, send them to Cuba or South America. We tried sending it to Africa in one instance, but they they wanted a bribe just to get it through customs. So most of our supplies went to South America. But that, for me, was massively gratifying to know that we were building something and it was having a huge impact on people. We, I think, we ended up sending a couple, few million dollars worth of supplies in the four years that I was at Duke. We would go into the basement and they would set aside these clean garbage bins full of material and then we'd sort it into boxes, sterilize it and then send it off. So, and I had always intended to go back to doing more nonprofit work. In fact, when I was at Duke, I took an elective in my MBA program with the legal, the JD, um, the law school on nonprofit management. And specifically for that purpose. And so I always intended to get back. There's never a good time to go back. It always feels like you never have enough time. So I just said, you know what, I got to do it. If I'm going to do it at all, I got to do it now. So we formed a nonprofit called uh, Ethanova. And Ethanova's mission is to develop devices and adapt them for the low resource areas where they don't have the money or the resources to care for patients in the way that we do in higher resource areas. And so that's been a a big focus of mine recently and one that uh, it's been very rewarding.
1: Well, thanks so much for your time today, Dan. Really appreciate it.
0: Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Much appreciated. Same here. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. We appreciate your support. Please check out our website at www.imaginehuman.com for show notes and a list of references that might benefit you. You can also check out past episodes, including our most recent episode with skincare expert Kimberly Ho discussing creating the safest standard in skincare. Additionally, we are working on some interesting projects we hope to share with the community soon. And as always, stay safe. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thank you very much.